you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to him. Social media is an interesting way of living now that it's sort of in us all to a degree. Some people haven't really tapped into social media and good for them. Um, I don't know if it's avoidable, but I know that when I did tap into social media, It was probably around the time that Viv and I had moved to Brevard and opened our yoga studio. And part of the reasoning of getting on social media was to, you know, promote that yoga studio. And also I wanted to put my my work on there, you know, because I've never advertised any of my landscape slash stone slash creations. I had never done any formal advertising or promotion. And, you know, people would say to me like, Jill, you need to, you need to promote yourself. Don't you love when people tell you what you need to do? And, you know, and I'm open to listening uh, and I've, but I've often really just tried to trust my gut and my intuition because, for one thing, working for people that are referred to you is a totally different ball game than working for a cold caller. You know, if, if somebody just uh, got a got your number and didn't know you. There seems to be a lot more skepticism. There's a lot more distrust. There's a lot more doubt. And then being a female, you've got to climb two different sets of hurdles because one, you have to convince them, especially the man, if there's the daddy and the couple, you got to convince him, you know, that you are worthy and that you know what you're doing. And they love to like... <clears throat> They like to throw terminology out there to test you. And that's always really fun for me because with all their like what their all their YouTube information, I love to be able to, you know, counter back to them. Uh, because when you do this for this many years, you've tried a lot of stuff and the efficiency factor is very important. 
And so, but it's always that challenge. And, you know, I hate to sound like I'm constantly beating the drum of, oh, I'm a female in a man's work world. Woe is me. Because that's not what I'm doing. When I, when I talk about these issues, it's the blatant truth. And you know, until you are in the shoes of a female who works in a male profession, then you can't understand it. And I know there's a lot of people out there that understand that because they've either been in it or they've had somebody they love in it or they've they've experienced in some way. And I'm not a victim. It's a choice I make each day to go out there. And but social media was a, a way to present the work and pictures of the jobs, you know, the befores and the afters and things like that. And that kind of bowls people over to a degree. And, you know, I'd be lying, you'd be lying if you didn't say you liked it when they like you. Like, 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 love, 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 love. Either it's a heart or it's a thumbs up. Oh, give me a heart. Oh, if they give me a thumbs up, they don't, they probably don't like it that much. I mean, how sick are we? How sick are we to constantly crave the heart? And we do. We crave the heart. We're not craving the thumbs up. We're craving the heart, which in essence is we're craving the love. Love me, love me, love me all day long. Please love me. And is this a, you know, is this a character flaw to constantly be craving love from people you don't even know? Is it a woundedness that is so deep that it will never be filled and those are the kind of questions I always ask myself. You know, is it I'm addicted to the dopamine and the adrenaline of the boom, the like or the love? And, you know, you watch all these like documentaries about social media and how they get into your brain and and, you know, it's we are we are chemically charged. And yes, I'm a chemically charged person. And. So, you know, I'm always thinking about this kind of stuff because basically, you know, I just spilled my guts to the world in a podcast called Hammered, dot, 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 stories of an insatiable spirit. And by doing that and putting that out on the world into slash social media and podcast platforms, I pretty much just showed my cards on everything. And, you know, but but I think there was the part of me that had lived in that closet for so long. And not just the homosexual closet, you know, that dark, deep, gay closet. But I'm talking living in an isolation closet. Hiding who you are not because of the sexuality thing, but just in general, you know, having self-worth and being worthy is something that is a running thread throughout our culture. I don't think it's just for gay people. I think that unworthiness is a deep, deep thing that's in our world, not just our nation. I think it's in the world. 
And I guess for me, until I reach a place of truly feeling worthy, then there will always be that that craving or that uh, longing for some sort of acceptance and some sort of love coming from outside of myself. And, you know, all the self-help and all the therapy and all that stuff about, you know, oh, you love yourself and then you can love others. Well, you know, uh, I don't know. Like, how does that work? Do you put posters of yourself in front of your bed on the wall and look at yourself each day and, oh, I love you, Jill Haney, so much I can't even stand it. And just, I love you, 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 I love you. I mean, we could go on forever with this. And, you know, being 60 or coming upon, I hadn't turned 60 yet, but it was kind of like, and I always used to say, okay, the rock work, stone work date cuts off at 60. Because I felt like, you know, am I going to be going to people's houses at 60 years old? And these people are like IT people in their 30s. I'm like 30 years older than them, and I'm like their worker out in their yard it's kind of embarrassing in a way. And and most of the time, like, you know, the younger generation coming up, they don't know how to do yard work. They don't know how to do anything physical. Like their mamas and daddies did their all their house chores or they hired it out. They grew up in homes where they had a nanny or they had a yard landscaper or they had a housekeeper. Or they had people that did everything. They had cooks. They A lot of these people just... You know, they didn't have to do anything. So then they make big bank because they're in, you know, the IT world, Silicon Valley computer world. They make all this money and then they buy these houses in Asheville, North Carolina. And now they're going to be, you know, um, they're going to be hobby farmers and they're going to be organic growers. They're going to be all these things that they see on Portlandia. But then they realize they don't even know how to use a shovel. I mean, I had one person, they didn't even know that you kick the shovel, you know, the little shelf foot holder on a shovel. They, they were killing their body, like trying to shovel. And I said, just take, put your foot on it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're talking, really elementary, you know, start from the beginning. And so, you know, I had this whole thing in my mind that by the time I'd be 60, that maybe something real good would happen, you know. And and after the podcast was released and after I heard it and really listened to it deeply, because that podcast came from somewhere else else. It was not planned. It came through me every single morning between the hours of, you know, 3.15 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. And it was like a channeling kind of thing. I didn't know what was going to come out of me. And I really didn't care because I felt like I've got to get this out of my body. There is a certain amount that we hold on a cellular level from our past, and I am tired of dragging this baggage around. You know, when you got rocks in your backpack, no pun intended, then there comes a point where it's like, take the fucking pack off your back and throw it down and move on. And the healing, you know... Will the healing happen? I don't know, but lighten your load. And that's what it kind of felt like for me. 
And around May, I remember, I think it was around May 18th, because that's my sister's birthday, but a woman who was very, very, very important to me and very instrumental in my growth and in my spiritual shift, and her name was Joyce Reynolds, and she passed away in Atlanta. And I had kind of been keeping up on social media because that's how we keep up now with a lot of people we love or people that we used to know or what have you. And her daughters had posted that she'd been not been doing very well. And I didn't know how bad off she was or whatever, but she left the planet. She left, as far as I know, her body. And that day I was working for a couple of gals had moved back from San Francisco, but I was at their house and I was in really grieving. And I don't know if it was, you know, how deep that went, but I felt very sad, but also very lucky and very happy because the first time I ever heard Joyce, I was at uh, St. Simon's Island and I spoke about this earlier in my podcast, but I talked about when she got up to speak, she talked about thought is creative and that we're all energy. And she'd written a book called The Energy Connection. And I was 24 years old and I had never heard anything like this in my life. But when she said, God is not a cop in the sky doling out tickets, that really struck me and that helped me so much and she's talked about God is within God is within you know she talked about you know source energy and your higher self and that if you can align with that higher part of yourself you know that is God and and you can create your life you know you create your own reality and all of these thoughts that were just very intriguing but baffling to me because when you've got a a whole head full of religion and a head full of sin and a head full of you know guilt it's very hard to override that because it's such training and it's such defensiveness and you want to you want to defend but why why do you want to f- defend that garbage you know, it's defending a disappointment lifestyle. It's defending a destructiveness of yourself. Why would you want to defend that? And that's what I started looking at. But there I was, and it was, you know, she had passed away. And so that whole day, I just remember, like, really going over a lot of stuff and and feeling her presence, you know, hover over me for a few minutes at that job and And then I felt like she was gone. But I knew that I had been so fortunate to have that experience with her. And another thing, you know, about social media was that it had reacquainted me with a lot of people from the past and some from some from childhood, not that many from childhood, some from high school. But, you know, with the whole Trump four year era that eliminated a lot of those people. And I had had to unfriend, oh my goodness, like over a hundred people from that whole experience because I just could not argue with them. And they wanted to argue. I don't want to argue. I don't care. 
you know, but there was a, there's a defensiveness that people have over their beliefs, and they got to stand tough and stand firm and blah, blah. It's like, okay, well, you go ahead and do that. But, you know, me standing firm in my belief systems has not gotten me very far. And so I kind of look at like, you know, Marianne Williamson talks about your best thinking got you here. Okay. Your best thinking gets you where. And is my thinking the best? So, I've had to sort of shed a lot of these beliefs and sort of open myself to new possibilities and open myself to people that come along that if it feels good in my gut, if it feels good in my solar plexus, if it feels good in my heart, then I will have a conversation and I will listen and I will be with you. If it feels horrible, I'm going to run because I don't have time. And I think we're getting to that place. You know, everything moves so fast. Everything is just flying by. And we don't have time for the drama and the defensiveness and the anger and the angst. And so with that, you know, with this podcast being out there, I didn't have any negatives. I had a lot of positives. I had a lot of people coming forth and talking about either families' addictions or, you know, relatives or something. And not just addiction. There were other topics that people were talking about. And and I wanted to know how it impacted a person. How did it affect a person? And really, a stranger. I wanted to hear from a stranger that didn't know me that had listened to that and how it had affected them. Because, you know, when you know somebody, it's a little bit different because they kind of know you. They kind of know your history. And then they'll be like, oh, Jill, I just love you. You know, a lot of people are do the whole pity thing like, oh, you had such a tragedy. And see, I don't see any of it as a tragedy. I see it all as exactly how it was supposed to go, maybe. I don't know if it was supposed to go that way, but I do know that I made a lot of choices, and I know that a lot of choices led me down certain roads that were, you know, not ideal, Uh, but then there were roads that were. So, who knows? None of us know. Nobody's going to know until we give up this flesh, blood, and bone suit that we're wearing. And when we give that up and our consciousness is free to go, then I guess we'll figure it out. But until then, I can't claim to have the corner market on my psyche or my soul or any of that. All I know is that each morning when I get up, I have got to find a way. I want to find a way to feel worthy and happy. You can't get happy until you're happy. You can't find that utopia until you find the satisfaction of being here in this moment. And that's one of the huge lessons for myself that I've been on a journey for a long time. But by doing the podcast, it lightened my load and it was like a lead it was like a shedding of another layer. It was like a shedding of another skin. 
But I did have a little backlash. You know, there were a few people that got a few feathers ruffled here and there, and that's okay. And none of it was ever meant to ruffle anything. You know, it's it's my truth and my perception. It does, I didn't say it was true. It, I said it was my truth and my perception. But that's the whole thing is I say what I mean and I mean what I say, but I didn't say it was true and you don't have to believe it and you don't have to listen. But the people who've chosen to listen, it's been kind of an interesting journey because it's all about let's just tell the fucking truth. Like tell the truth faster and on social media, could you just tell the truth? Can you just tell like when things are not going the way, you know, you, everybody puts their wonderful lifestyle and their wonderful pictures. Now, not everybody. Some people like to drag their drama through social media also, but I think there's a fine line between being honest and being real and then being like, Ooh, let me hurry up and do this. Oh, because you know what? It feeds a frenzy. There's a frenzy inside of yourself that it feeds. And the only reason I'm speaking about it is because of the, I've experienced it. It's like when I put a picture of uh, my animals, then it's like, oh, that's so sweet. And people love that. And that feels nurturing and good and safe. You know, and then when you put pictures of your work, then you get the accolades. It's like, oh, my God, you're so talented. Oh, my God, that's so great. And then you get that feeling of like, oh, they like me. You know, the Sally Fields. Oh, they really like me. They really like me. And then, you know, but then you put a picture of yourself and maybe you and your friends or you and your love mate or whatever. And then you wait and you want to hear Oh, you look so young. Oh, look how good you look. Oh, and all that stuff about how you look. And see, that stuff is so deep and so real. And then when you hear all those little things that they say, then you feel okay. Okay? I'm going to feel okay because they said I look good. That stuff is very deep. And that's the part of like looking in that mirror and being able to go like, okay, you're okay. I like you today. Come on, let's go. And it's just a very fine line. But social media has been a very um, disturbing and also enhancing tool. And one person came forth to me that found me through social media and not from the podcast but he was a young man that had worked for me back in 2002, I think it was. And he's actually in the podcast. And as I was in the time period of recording, out of the blue, he contacts me. And I was, it was so coincidental, or was it? It's never coincidental. But he had been a, a soccer player at Montreat College, and him and some of the guys had come to work for me doing stonework. And they're in the podcast, and they're in the part about uh, Sea Turtle. And I won't go into all that because it's a story. But they worked for me for about a year, and he was adorable, and his name's J.D., but he contacted me, and we decided to meet down at Flat Rock at a bakery down there in uh, Flat Rock near Hendersonville. 
I had not seen him since he left Black Mountain, and that was probably around 2002, 2003, probably, I'm not even sure, but it's been a long time. And I was so excited to see him because social media, you can see people and you see their pictures, but to physically see him and be with him, I couldn't believe it was going to happen. And we got out of our vehicles and he started walking toward me. And to me, he looked the same. He was always precious. He has this curly hair and he's just adorable. And we hugged and we went in and he seemed a little nervous and I was a little bit nervous, but we got something to eat and we went and sat down and I said, I just want to hear it all. I just want to hear it all. Tell me everything. And he started telling me his journey, you know, and he told me he'd left and he'd gone into the Peace Corps and he'd gone to South Africa and and he met a girl and then they began to fall in love and eventually married. And then he went into the army. And it was really interesting because when we were at this sea turtle experience. The guy we had been working for had been a Navy SEAL, and I don't know how much impact that had on those young men, but I know that J.D. chose to go into the the Army after the Peace Corps. With that, he became a helicopter pilot and went on to Afghanistan. But he told me his experience, and then his other friend, one of the boys that worked with us, whose name was Drew, Drew had gone into the Marines. And I think I speak about this in an earlier podcast, but the day Drew was going to leave, he came into my shop in Black Mountain to say goodbye to me. And he'd been stationed, I think, in San Diego. He was going to go to California. But he'd come in. He was so excited. And I said, just take care of yourself and have fun. And he was walking out and he was wearing khaki shorts and uh, tennis shoes and a t-shirt. And I remember his blonde curly hair and he was just adorable. And I remember he smiled and I smiled. Well, JD and I are sitting at the Flat Rock Bakery and he goes on to tell me that Drew had been murdered in Belize. And he had made two tours in Afghanistan with the Marines and had come back to the States. And Drew was always a drinker and everybody knew that it was sort of a sort of a thing. He couldn't really handle his alcohol. He couldn't hold it. And you know how you get to that. You cross that little line and now it's like, uh oh. They just crossed the line, and, and I, I could identify with that totally because I was like a Drew, and I was fun up until that one spot in time when you cross over that line. Now it's not fun, and so J.D. had kind of tried to help Drew at like a brother. He had sort of tried to help him in his life, and he said, you know, I'd sort of taken on a father figure for him, and... But Drew had gone down to Belize, and apparently he was wanted to open a dive shop. But apparently there was supposedly gold in Belize. And I don't know if he found gold or something to do with gold. Not quite sure. But he had met a woman who was about probably 30 years older than him. He kind of was into older women, but they had 
you know, gotten together, and I guess he was going to open this dive shop, but they came out of a bar one night, and apparently some gang abducted them, and the woman had a Jeep, I think it was like a Jeep Cherokee, but they abducted them and drove them into the jungle and cut their throats and killed them. And J.D. was telling me about his grief and how surreal this was. And I sat and I looked at him and I could see a difference from the 22-year-old to the 44-year-old. And he had three sons of his own now and a wife and they'd had their ups and downs and they were actually living sort of like nomads and he was back in the States working in some sort of government role and he was he he could work remotely, which was great because then they can just travel around and they were actually just Airbnb in it all over the place and giving those kids an experience because with a pandemic, you know, kids weren't even in school or whatever, so they're just like out traveling around having a good time. But I could see in his face that something was different and you know, life does that. And it was so interesting to me because there I was still doing the same thing that I was doing when he left. And that was a long time span for me to get up each day and go out that door and do this physical, physical work. And other people had gone on out into the world and traveled and had all these experiences. And then they, you come full circle and there we are. And we sat and we talked and we laughed. And at moments I was just to the point of tears. And I just felt such love for that young man. To me, he was still young. To me, he was still that young college guy. And I just, my heart was open and it was painful and it was happy. It was two things at one time, and it's okay to have that. It's okay to be grieving and to be loving. And I loved him, and I grieved him. I grieved his youth, and I grieved his adulthood because I could see his pain in his eyes and in his face, and he wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And I understand that. I understand not knowing how to deal with a grief that runs so deeply in your cells that sometimes you just don't know what to do with it. But by just sharing with another person, a safe person, about those feelings, sometimes that relief is the release that you're looking for. And all through my life, you know, all the different uh sadnesses and traumas and dramas and relationships, grief has been a long-standing friend. And is it a friend? I don't know. Maybe it's an enemy. But, you know, moving back to Asheville, and I'd been here almost two years now, had I really grieved leaving Brevard? I loved Brevard. You know, I really love that town, and I love the people, and I had a lot of friends there. And when I left there, and Viv and I split up, you know, she had the poodle, Dan Dan, and I missed that dog. But I had to block that out. I could not deal with that. That pain of loving, 
the pain of loving is a lot harder than the pain of hating. And I didn't hate anybody. I didn't hate her. I didn't hate the dog. I didn't hate Brevard. But I had to go. And I was in a grieving process through those first couple of months, especially. And with the pandemic coming, it was just a prime time to isolate, grieve, isolate, grieve, and avoid because those feelings hurt. And who wants to stay in that shit? Move on. Get happy. And so there was always a juxtaposition between those feelings. But by, you know, meeting with JD and having that day with him, I drove back. And I just remember, you know, it was a real bright, sunny day, and I was driving back up to Asheville. And I just kept thinking really deeply about the impact that those boys, those young men, had on my life and the impact that I had on their lives. And I was very grateful that I'd had that opportunity. And I knew in my heart, you know, that I had new people working with me, this new guy, Joey. And I think about him a lot. And I think about how, you know, one day I know he'll look back at this experience and he'll probably laugh his head off because, you know, that's what you do. But I'm hoping that there will be just a shred of something positive that I can give to him. That's not related to stonework. Yeah, I can teach him how to do stonework, but it goes a lot deeper than that. It's about love, and it's about trust, and it's about giving. It's about suiting up and showing up and being real and trusting your instincts and following your heart. And so with all of that, I was to a place where I had felt like I had just suffered enough And I felt like I had suffered enough from this longingness of having a person in my life. And, you know, I was single. I'd been single for a while. And for me, that's a pretty long time because I used to have a backup plan. But when I left Brevard, I didn't have a plan. I didn't want a plan. I said, that's it. I'm done. Twelve years in that, I'm out. I don't care if I ever go out with another person. I don't care if I ever have another love mate. And, you know, that's where I was at. But now that some time had gone by and I felt better and I felt a release and I sort of felt lighter as a human, I felt like maybe I can open myself up to the possibility of love or connection or friendship or what have you. And by taking the focus off of this past person, because you really can't go back. You know, we never really had a deep, ongoing relationship. We had some fleeting times together, but I needed to really let that go. And my friend that, you know, recommended the dating site, she was just trying to help me. You know, she was just trying to say, look, man, just get a distraction and, you know, And I think, you know, when you're in high school or college, when you're a younger person, it's a lot easier to distract yourself and just be like, move on to the next one kind of thing. And I think back in the 80s, that's what we all did. You know, you just move on to the next one. There was never any grieving process over your like ex. It was kind of like, okay, I'm done with them. Duh, you know, move on. 
but this was different. I I didn't feel like that was really an option to jump around and date people and all that. But there I found myself, you know, on a dating site thinking, oh God, is this what is this what it's come to? Well, the next morning, after I woke up from hitting the smiley face on this woman from Charleston, South Carolina, I didn't look at my dating site app or anything until that evening. And I pulled it up because they, they send you notices, like if you get a notice or whatever. And I looked and I was like, uh, and I don't, I never know how to disalarm. I don't know how to undo that. You know, I'm just not technical to the point of how do you not make a thing come up with a notice? Like I don't want my phone dinging all the time, like, hey, you have a notice. And not like a million women are going to be dinging me for like, you know, a message or anything, but this came up and it was like, oh, I had a message. And so I, I tapped into it and I looked at it and, and it was this woman and she said, I like living in Charleston. And I was like, oh, she said, I'm new to this. And my daughter actually talked me into doing this dating online thing laugh out loud, and then I responded, oh, well, my friend told me to get on here, so it's like you got to qualify, you got to qualify like, okay, I didn't really choose to do this because I'm not that kind of person, and I think that's kind of like what we were both saying, like we're both saying like, oh, I'm only on here because somebody told me I should, you know, so it was kind of funny because I thought, okay, your daughter told you to do it and my friend told me to do it. Okay, well, that's something we have in common, right? You're always looking for the commonalities in something if you're attracted to somebody physically. You want to make it work out. And she was very, very physically attractive. I mean, very. And so we kind of started going back and forth with this small talk kind of stuff, you know. And I said... It's kind of weird because it's like when you're at a party and you're standing around and there you are and you're standing there talking to a person and it's that old, so what do you do for a living, you know, and what do you do for a living? And so when I said that, I think she took it literally like I was asking her what she did for a living and she said, well, that's a good question. She goes, I guess that's a good start. And she said, I'm a winemaker. What about you? And I'm like, a winemaker? Oh, Jesus. That's the last thing on the planet I need. And I just laugh. I kind of laugh to myself. And I'm like, of course you're a winemaker. And so I text her back. And I'm like, Oh, do you make it at your house? Do you make it in your basement? Because, you know, I'm thinking back to the ice cream days when I had a lady that made wine in her basement, you know, and I'm kind of, I just have this vision of this woman in Charleston making wine at her house, you know, and she says, uh, no, I'm a distributor in the U.S., but I also own a vineyard, and I went, oh, and I said, is it in South Carolina? And she said, no. And that's it. And I said, okay. So we, we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And then she's, you know, we both decided like, let's, let's text instead of being on this dating site because it felt kind of, you know, kind of weird. So we exchanged phone numbers 
And so she texted me and said, she said, my name is Helen. And I told her my name was Jill. And so we began this conversation. And it was pretty, um, it was pretty vague in the beginning and, and a lot of joking. It was kind of funny. And I liked her sense of humor. And, uh, and so we both kind of had a lot in common as far as what we were looking for. And she went on to tell me that uh, she said, I'm Greek. And she said, is that going to be a deal breaker? And I went, why? Why would that be a deal breaker? And she kind of laughed and said, well, you know, a lot of people's views on foreign women. And she asked me my views on foreign women. And I said, well, I don't, I haven't dated a lot of foreign women. I've known a lot of foreign women. And I said, well, one thing for me that's very refreshing about a foreign person is their directness. A lot of times uh, European women seem to have a little more um, direct communication. And I'm comparing that to probably Southern Americans. I think Southern American women... uh, are lacking in the truth telling and they like to sugarcoat and make things look better than they are. So, you know, we kind of talked about that a little bit about authenticity and just being honest. And so she told me that she had been single for four years and that she'd been working on her life and really just um, being with her family and that family was very, very important to her. And she went on to tell me that she had a 5,300-acre vineyard in Greece and that this was a family business and that her father had passed away and that it was basically her and her sister and her mother and that she had taken over the family business because her sister had like uh, a bunch of kids and and her sister lived in London. And she told me that she had come to the States because she wanted to try to save the family business, basically, because Greece had been suffering a while back and things got bad, you know, years back. And so she'd come over and was working with a company uh, to strike up a deal. And she'd done a lot of presentations, but she said her English wasn't like great and so they kind of went with another company or another vineyard uh, because of the the translation thing so she really really had been working for two years to work on presentations and working on herself to you know be able to be in that corporate uh, that corporate world and have an impact and sell herself because she was very articulate and very smart and highly intelligent. And as I got to know her more, I was very intrigued with her spirituality and her sense of style and her voice and everything about her was very, very appealing to me. And for the most part, it was her outlook and she had a very positive outlook And I think a lot of times in our lives when we've experienced pain and drama and trauma and and that things of that nature, I think that your compassion level and your empathy level are just so much deeper. And so we kind of started this journey and her name was Helen 
Larissa Helen Achilles. And I thought, how Greek can you get? And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to call you Helen of Greece. And she laughed her head off. She says, I like that. And we talked on the phone. And I loved her accent. And we were talking. And she said that she had been working on this uh, business plan with Guinness. Guinness Lager. And she said, are you familiar with them? They're out of Ireland. And I said, oh, yeah, I know who they are. But I had never drank Guinness because I quit drinking at such an early age. I didn't really keep up with all that. But apparently Guinness had bought some vineyards and, you know, were looking into her place or whatever. And she had been working on this for a very long time, this project. And so... Her home vineyard had basically been supporting her living in the U.S. in Charleston so that she could work this deal. But she had um, distribution and factory and all that going on over there and was trying to coordinate here and there. So she had a lot on her plate. And she told me that up front, that I'm a very busy person And, you know, but I am going to take my time and I'm going to take my time and I'm going to meet the right person. And I like that. I like the fact that she wasn't like jumping in and like, hey, how's it going? You know, it's kind of like at this point. Now, she was younger than me. She was 49 and, uh, you know, and I'm 59, 10 years, you know, it was 59. So, but we started this interaction and. I really liked her. I really liked how she communicated. And I really liked the fact that she just went right in with questions. She wasn't afraid to ask me questions about myself. And so that was, you know, a little hard for me because I still a little gun shy on asking personal questions. But there was just something really, really, really intriguing about her. And I felt this new sense of kind of excitement, you know. I kind of felt like God. Like, I felt a little bit of possibility about, you know, meeting somebody with some real substance and some real, um, somebody that I could learn from. And that's what was really, really intriguing to me about Helena Greece was like, oh my God, like, I've never been to Greece. I've never been to Europe. You know, I've been to a few places. I've been to Mexico and Aruba. And and I've been, you know, a few places in the U.S., but I haven't traveled abroad. And so we talked a little bit about travel. But in those early days of us talking, I started finding myself just being a little bit lighter. You know, I felt a little a little bit of hope, like I've got a conversation going with somebody and I told a few people about it, but you know, there's that embarrassing stigma when people go, where'd you meet them? And you go, I met them on the internet. And you know, then you're like, like, that's just so gross. For some reason, it's got a stigma. And I know there's people out there that met the love of their life on the internet. No, they lived happily ever after. Well, good. I'm glad. But I had never gotten to that place yet where I was like proud of it because I wasn't really proud of it. I was just sort of like doing it. So I didn't like, 
you know, advertise my, um, my new conversation that I was having. But as I was going to work over at Robbie's at the Vortex and Joey and I were kind of doing our thing, you know, I'd kind of tell him a little bit about it, but I didn't go into many details because it was personal. And, you know, I'm his sort of boss or, you know, I am his boss, but I just, you know, there's certain things that you kind of just keep on the lowdown. So, with all of that, I had this new sense of vitality, and I felt excited. And yeah, I kind you could kind of say butterfly-ish, maybe not full-fledged butterflies, but it felt butterfly-ish, which is great. I love butterflies. It's kind of like I love chills, you know, when you get chills and it's like good chills. And I had continued to go to the Harmonic Egg and I had gone for a session out there and, you know, in this Harmonic Egg, I had an experience and I found myself on a cobblestone street and I found myself walking and I could see these like houses or kind of houses, and I couldn't pinpoint where I was. And then I smelled something like steak cooking. Like I smelled like food. It was weird. And so when I came out, I, I told my experience to Steve, and he said, you just described Portugal. And I laughed because I had really been looking at Portugal. I'd been reading about it and studying about it because during the pandemic you know that's when you really want to go somewhere because you can't and I had thought you know I want to go to Portugal I really want to visit that place and he said you totally described it he said you just went there he said you know you can be in two places at one time and I go you know I kind of believe you because I do believe in these different dimensions, and I do believe we can travel. And, and I grew up with daydreaming as a way of life. Daydreaming was my go-to. Daydreaming was my drug of choice as a child, because I could completely remove myself from a you know, a panicky situation or a disruptive, you know, an argument my parents were having, I could go daydream and I could remove myself. And it was like a form of self-soothing. So I just kind of felt this new sense of something. And all I know is that it felt better than I had been feeling. And It was the distraction that I'd been looking for. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates.